so good to be here. Seems like the good old days. In light of all that's going on in that church and across the world and every place else, uh, I thought we'd deal with some turbulent times. Appropriate message, I suspect, for all of us right here. The Lord is so good to us, isn't he? Think of where we've come from. Meeting a little schoolhouse just down the road not that long ago. God is good. On the night of August 6, 1883, Krakatoa, a small volcanic island southwestern Indonesia, literally exploded, wiping out two-thirds of the island. It was just plain gone, no longer there. The explosion produced one of the loudest noises ever recorded in history. In fact, it was heard a distance of 3,000 miles away. For 100 miles around, there was darkness at midday. It was the equivalent of 200 megatons of TNT, 3,000 times the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Amazing. The fine dust it produced in the upper atmosphere produced glorious, brilliant sunsets for years around planet Earth. The eruption produced huge waves, tsunamis, an estimated height of 100 feet. I've seen big waves before. Can you imagine being on the beach with that closing in on you? It has traveled some 8,000 miles and destroyed some 36,000 people. How can there be a God with such natural disasters? Hurricanes, tornadoes, car accidents, all the rest that goes on. Actually, man's sin against man kills far more than that. The Hitlers, the Stalins, the Maos killed far more. Job reminds us in chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Is he ever? We all face storms of life, don't we? One type or another. We've been there. Most of us uh, just come out of a storm or maybe just entering a storm or finally we're maybe in the middle of a storm. The important thing to know is what do we do? How, how do we think? How do we handle life as we go through these storms? I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I do know this. I know the one who holds the future. Amen. And he is a good and gracious God to his people. Jeremiah said it like this in 29.11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. If you got the outline in front of you, I encourage you to follow along with me there. Notice the proposition before us. The next time we're in a storm, there are five truths we must know and apply. The first truth, well, Jesus brought me here. It's not an accident, is it, where you're at today? Jesus brought me here. Remember the uh, pandemic? Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. As our Lord says in Matthew 14, 22, and we'll be going through this passage. In Matthew 14, 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. 
This is quite a miracle, isn't it? He had just fed the 5,000. Now we have this miracle right behind it. In fact, the four Gospels report that feeding of the 5,000. The only miracle reported in all four Gospels. A creation miracle. He spoke. Can you imagine? <laughs> uh, barley bread that, barley that never grew, fish that never swam, and I can guarantee you the meal they ate is far better than you can, I can get in the best restaurant today. A great meal prepared by the Lord himself. So he just performed this mighty miracle, feeding so many. What's the reaction to all this? Well, if we went over to John 6, but we won't, they wanted to make him king. Why not? Free food. Can you imagine? I never forget in the college dorm when the uh, Coke machine was stuck. And any button you push, you get whatever you wanted out of it. Guess how fast the college kids emptied that machine? <laughs> it was amazing. Free. We love that word in America. So they wanted to make him king. Notice the first word there in verse 22. <clears throat> Immediately. You see that? At once, right now. So they don't get caught up in some kind of political plan. Jesus puts them into the boat. Remember Jonah? Jonah was told uh, to go, and where'd he go? He, he went on a boat. He, he went uh, fishing of sorts, right? Got him to go to Nineveh, but he went to sea on a boat. Storm came on Jesus. I'm sorry. Storm came on Jonah. Jesus was there too, yes. And like Jonah, what was he doing on that boat? Sleeping away. Can you imagine the storm? It's like many Christians sleep through life. Don't get engaged like they should. Sleeping away. So what'd they do? They threw him over. Where'd he end up? In the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights. Can you imagine? The storm was an accident? No such things as accidents, is there? Only incidents. No such thing as happen chance, right? Everything is Father filtered. Everything in your life and my life passes through our Father's hands. It's all God approved, all of it. What did Jonah say there in chapter 2, verse 9? He said, salvation is of the Lord. Where did he get that truth from? How did he come up with that? And once he came up with that golden nugget, what did that fish do? Spatui, right onto the beach. He came. A lot of people have doubted that story. They th I have people who chide me, oh, you're a Christian, you believe all those stories in the old, and that's often one they bring up. And what was it? Back in 1890, was it? They were fishing off the coast of England, and a uh, big whale was it? And in the belly of that whale, there was a, they cut that whale open, there was a living man that came out of it. They called his name Jonah from then on. True story. Amazing, isn't it? So storms are not accidents. Everything is from our Father. God has a purpose in it. God has a plan. The storms you face, the storms I face, death, prolonged illness, loss of an important person in my life. Remember, a fly doesn't move unless God approves. The littlest things can make the greatest difference, as we know in life. Conflict, a rebellious child, health problems, money problems. A situation must change in my life. I like how Romans 8.28 says it. And we know that all, some, most, no, 99%. No, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who have been called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? 
when the storms come, we need to hang on to these truths, don't we, brethren? These are real. Peter had something to say about this. In 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't think it's strange. God has a purpose for this. God is, we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. We know the end point where we're going. What can be greater than that? So we walk in loving our Savior and living for his glory. When is the last time you were in a storm and thought that? It's father-filtered. It's all father-filtered. Storms and trials of life are not all bad. We can learn much in those trials, can't we? Far better, mostly, most of the time, than we can when, life, when the times are good. You ever see a child gets all he wants, everything he wants growing up? We know how that child turns out. You don't want all you want, believe me. It's not a pretty sight, is it? The psalmist says in 119.71, it's good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It's what? Good. Afflictions are good, says the psalmist. They have a what? A way of strengthening us, a way of adding backbone to us. The old days of shipbuilding, when they needed a, the main timber for the mask, they would not take one from the center of the forest. They would take one on the outer edges where it's been ravaged by the storms, beaten down, and that timber was tough, was hard, could stand the storms, and that's the one that was chosen for the main mask of the ship. It was Thomas Watson, that old English Puritan, who said it like this. When God lays men upon their backs, then they look up to heaven. No better place to look, is there, brethren? No better place. Well, that's the first truth. first truth. Let's take a look at the second truth here. Jesus not only brought me here, but he's what? He's praying for me. Can you imagine that? These men are in the storm, middle of the sea, being beaten down, wondering if they're going to be alive in a few moments. And Jesus is praying for them. Matthew chapter 14, right here it is in verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came... He was alone there. What was the time? Evening? Evening? What, what time is the evening time? That's between 6 and 9 p.m. The psalmist says in 55, or Hebrews 13, 5 rather, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So our Lord's praying for them. Remember when he chose the disciples? He prayed for them all night, all night. The disciples are in the storm of the sea, but Jesus is on the mountain keeping watch over them, praying for them as they're in the storm, perhaps to strengthen their faith that they fail not. Yes, 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our Lord sticks closer than a brother. Thomas Edison, our Ohio boy, who had over a 1,000 patents, amazing man in discoveries, he made this statement. No discovery has ever been made in a crowd. Interesting. Prayer is best done in solitude and silence. Jesus is on the mountain by himself praying to his father as he watches the men tossed to and fro in the midst of that sea. It's recorded that Jesus prayed 15 times in the New Testament. Jesus was a prayer warrior. 
When Jesus began his ministry, remember how he started? Right in prayer in Luke chapter 3.21. He's praying there. And heaven was opened for him. When the end came for Jesus' ministry, he spoke seven words on the cross. Of those seven words, he spoke three of them were prayers to his Father above. Prayer is so important to Jesus. Question, how important is prayer to me, to you? Actually, you don't have to say a thing. All you have to do is look at your last seven days, your last 30 days, your last 365 days. That tells you everything. Prayer is critical. Once Jesus prayed all night, can you imagine? In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. When's the last time you prayed all night? Interesting. It was Wesley, John Wesley, who said, God does nothing but by prayer and everything with it. D.L. Moody, a Chicago man, said, Every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. Prayer. Where's prayer, prayer fit in my life? Where, where does it fit in your life? How important is prayer in our lives? Peter had something to say about that in 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. Imagine that. Eight billion people on planet Earth. That's quite a few. <laughs> Imagine all those who know him, millions around this world, and he hears their prayers and responds to their prayers. Amazing. Jesus is praying for them on the mountain, but the 12 don't pray. Never once has it ever said. They're, they're in the boat. Their lives are at stake. They think they're going down. And no recording of any prayer for them. They're in the fight of their lives, but they don't cry out once to the living God. You ever go through a day fretting and complaining and griping about this and that and reflect back, you know, I never brought the Lord into this. God, help us. Luke 18, 1, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. 1 Timothy 2, 8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere. God, help us. We are to be prayer warriors. We are to be lifting him up. Prayer is also a relationship. Can I ask you a personal question today? You know, it's just you and I talking, and I say, hey, you know about Christian so-and-so over here? Uh, did you know they never pray? Never pray. What would you say about that kind of person? What, what do you think their relationship with God? They never pray. Can you imagine a child never talking to his father? Never pray. How's your prayer life? Do you have a regular time? Do you have a time where you just get away and if you don't set it in motion, if you don't lock it in, it's probably not going to happen. Scripture talks about praying unceasingly. Even when you walk into a store, you're talking with the teller there at the cash machine. Offer up a little prayer. Lord, open up this conversation. Lord, encourage this one. Do we pray? Are we a praying people? This is a vital, urgent, and essential area of the ministry, to pray. Vance Havner said it like this. It's a, it is possible to do more by doing less when we get on our knees. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer. 1 Thess 5, 17. Pray without ceasing. What's that look like? Pray without ceasing. God help us. 
When the end came to Jesus' ministry, he spoke seven words on the cross, and three were prayer, right? Prayer was so important to Jesus that once he prayed all night, how important is it to you and me? Well, the proof is in the last seven days, isn't it? Every one of us has time to do what we really want to do. You ever notice that? Somebody's so busy, they, they don't have time for anything, and all of a sudden their favorite hobby, a sale comes up on the other side of the city, and they can... Amazing how we have time. No one will ever say on his deathbed, I prayed too much. We won't say that. Now the wind begins to howl. The waves are picking up. They're engulfing the ship. Mark says it like this. Then he, in Mark 6, 48, then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Oh, the terror of being in such a state. The disciples prayed. We don't see them praying here. All the human effort, all the struggle, they think they can do it. Prayer is described as looking up in Psalm Let's get it here. Prayer is described as looking up in Psalm 5.3, as lifting up the soul in Psalm 25, as lifting up the heart in Lamentations 3, as pouring out the heart in Psalm 62, pouring out the soul in 1 Samuel 1, calling upon the name of God in Acts 22, crying to God in Psalm 27. Drawing near to God in Hebrews 10. Crying to heaven in 2 Chronicles 32.20. Beseeching the Lord in Exodus 32. Seeking God in Job 8. Seeking the face of the Lord in Psalm 27. Making supplication in Job 8. Bowing the knee in Ephesians 3. Prayer, prayer, prayer. How's your prayer life? How am I doing? Critical. The infinite, eternal one, the one we're going to spend eternity with, the one who created all this, how's my relationship, how's my talking to him going on? He's given us 66 books of the Bible. We talk to him through prayer. He talks to us through the word and through other ways as well. God, help us to follow our Savior and be in prayer with him. Well, Jesus brought me here. That's true. He's praying for me. That's true. Now Jesus comes to me. Comes to the disciple. Look at this, Matthew 14, 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Where is it? In the middle of the sea. What sea is this? The Sea of Galilee. Do you know your geography? Do you know the Sea of Galilee? They're right in the middle of it. Sea of Galilee is some 13 miles long, some 8 miles wide. Seven, in fact, it's the lowest freshwater lake in the world, 700 feet below sea level. Out of it flows the Jordan River right into the Dead Sea, the lowest body of water in the world, about a quarter mile down below sea level. The beauty of this lake is unsurpassed, Galilee. In fact, my great aunt did a world tour many years ago, went around the world, can you imagine? And in going around the world, after she was done with that trip, she said the most beautiful spot she's ever been at is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Nothing quite like it. It's a beautiful setting. No place like it on planet Earth. Some of us right here have seen it, been on it, and it's a great place. And many things of our Lord has happened on that sea.
the most beautiful sight, she said. Now wait, um, Mark 6.48 says what? He saw them. You ever in the middle of a storm and you're trying to look out into a lake and trying to see anything? Doesn't go too well, does it? He, he saw them is what it says. What time is it? Well, it's the fourth watch. That's 3 a.m. To, to 6. Uh, ever been in your car in a storm in the middle of the night? Wipers are going. How far can you see down the road? He sees them. Our Lord's on a the mountain. They're in the middle of the storm, miles away from each other, and he sees them. By the way, the Lord sees how much? All things. He knows it all. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows why you do what you do. Not just what you do, but the motivations behind it. He's the omniscient one, the omnipotent one, the omnipresent one. The Lord sees all things. The psalmist said it like this in 33:18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Who's he watching over? Who's he really interested in? Start again. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. That's who the Lord is interested in. Brethren, God always sees us. There's never a time he does not see us. Be careful. Matthew 14, 25. Look what he says here. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. So the one who made the water, who breathed it out in Genesis 1, who created all things, now he's walking on that H2O. You ever try to walk on water? Not when it's frozen, no, when it's liquid. The one from eternity past, clothed in human flesh, is suspended on H2O. He came to them as, but as he did when Lazarus died, he came to Lazarus how long? Four days later, right? God never comes late, God never arrives early. He's always at the precise time. A reminder of his power. It's a reminder, really, of the cross. The cross lies in the background of so much of this. So he walks on the water, not to teach them how to walk on the water. No, he's not doing that. He's teaching them what? He's showing them what? It's a picture. Do you see the picture as he walks on the water? That he will do whatever it takes to love his disciples, to rescue his disciples. Whatever's the best for you, he brings into your life. Oh, I know, sometimes it doesn't seem like it. What your doctor told me, what the doctor told my wife, what the other person did or said or what they took from it doesn't seem like it. You have to trust in God's providence, don't you? Everything is father-filtered. Not 99%. No, no, no. Everything. In Matthew 14, 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were what? Troubled. What did they think it was? It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear. Because of the darkness, because of the storm, because of fear, they did not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. They thought, no doubt, it was some kind of water demon, some kind of phenomena coming at them. They thought their ministry was gone, their life was over. It's bad enough to be in a storm filling with water and the ship going down, and then this scene appears on top of it. The very one they wanted to be with is the very thing that's scaring them. Interesting concept, isn't it? What they thought was a ghost is really Jesus. What they're really fearing and frightened themselves to the soul was Christ. 
I have seen some go through trials. And the very thing that frightened them was the hand of God working out his providence in their life. I have faced storms more than once myself. On one occasion, what I feared so much what God, was God using to me to conform me all the more to be like him, to be like my Lord. Hudson Taylor once noted that God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. He wants to zap that human pride out of us, that human strength that we rest in. James 4, 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He wants you and I humble. It's all of God. So in Matthew 14, 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. What did Jesus say? They're in the middle of a storm. They think their life is over. They think they're going down. What's he say? Next time you're in a storm in the deep of it, try that one on for size. Be of good cheer? Is he kidding them? Not our Lord. What a contrast here. Look at the reality. Who, who is with you? I am. The Lord Jesus, right? The very waves that frighten them are the very waves the Lord uses to come to them. I wonder how much of your and my sufferings are wasted. Jesus is right there in the storm, but what we fear so much, what we shrink back from, is really the Lord himself using it to bring us closer to him. We don't go to him, so he must come to us. So we go through it again sometimes because we don't learn the first time. Another storm. Remember Paul, how he put it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, do not lose heart, even though the outward man is perishing, yet even the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction. Did you notice that? Boy, some of the afflictions you guys are going through, that I've been through, you know, just a few years ago, I remember biting into a strawberry at the table, and my back was out. And that one little bite brought tears down my face. The pain was excruciating. I finally learned what that word excruciating means. It comes from the crucifixion, but it's, oh, the pain. We've all been there. Many of us have. We know what it's about. Our light affliction, compared to what another place that burns right now, compared to that place, just a light affliction right now. A light affliction, which was but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Just like a carver carves out a figurine out of a block of wood, so is God's carving away in our lives, taking out the, the dross, removing the non-essentials, making us more and more like his son as we live for his glory. So he comes to them on the water. But because of the darkness, because of the storm, because of fear, they did not recognize him. The very one they wanted to be with is right there in front of them. Matthew says it like this in 1427, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Yes, who is with you? Christ. I wonder how many of your and my sufferings are wasted because we don't draw close to the Lord in the storm. 
We don't see Jesus who is right there with us. We don't go to him. Do not lose heart. George MacDonald, the Scottish minister from the 1800s, said, How often we look upon God as our last and feeblest resource. We go to him because we have nowhere else to go. And when we learn that the storms of life have driven us, not upon the rocks, but upon the desired haven. Well, he brought me here. He's praying for me. He comes to me. And on top of it all, in the midst of this, he does what? He teaches us. Jesus teaches me in the storm. Matthew 14, 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, is it, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. I'm tempted to say here's that brash young disciple with hoof and mouth disease. He puts his mouth in motion and before his brain ever gets in gear. But what's he want? He wants to really be with who? With Jesus. Anything better than that? Nothing better than that. Notice what he asks. He, he says, he used that word command. Command I come unto you, right? Peter knows he can't walk on the water. That's impossible, right? Peter knew he could do it if the Lord provided him the ability to do it. By the way, what can you do on your own? We think we can do all kinds of things. Sometimes we find out we need the Lord in everything. Even the atheist is given a breath by God to curse God. Interesting concept. Remember Jesus in 15.5 of John? Without me you can do nothing. Nothing. We are wholly dependent upon him. Can you imagine Peter saying, Lord, here I come. And he gets out of that boat and starts running across that water. What presumption. <laughs> what a failure. But I know professing Christians, day by day, they go by and uh, they don't read the word. They don't have a time of prayer with the Lord. They don't commune with the Lord. They have trouble meeting with God's people. When God is in it, the love of Christ is present. Look what he says in Matthew 14, 29. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. The storm's waging, driving force, middle of the night, and Peter is walking on the water. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that scene? He, he, he begins to walk, and I'm, I'm sure he grabs that boat and puts one leg in, and then he puts the other leg in, and as he begins to walk out, he's, he's getting out there, and finally he's got one little pinky left on that boat. And, and finally, he has to let go of everything. And now he's fully dependent upon the Lord. Tough, isn't it? To be fully dependent on the Lord. But Peter shows us how. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says it like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will what? Direct your paths. Right there it is. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He fixes his eyes on Jesus. And follows him. As Robert Murray McShane said, a thousand looks at Christ, one look at self. Is that how you live? In Matthew 14, 30, it says, But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. 
So his faith got him out of the boat, but now he's in a different situation. He's never been there before. He's outside the boat, but he'd never been in a storm outside the boat on the water. How do you handle this? What do you do? Does Peter begin to sink? Ah, he does. What's Peter doing? The text says what? He's looking at the storm. Be careful. Be careful of the storm as you focus on. He took his eyes off of Jesus. You see, God's bringing him along. He's showing him how to maneuver this Christian life. He got caught up in this situation versus the one who controls the situation. Learn this lesson. When a storm comes, keep focused on Jesus. Then you have peace. When the storm comes and you don't focus on him, you have turbulence. Hebrews puts it like this in 12.1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. God help us to do. Well, he brought me here. He's praying for me. He comes to me. He teaches me. One more. Jesus sees me through the storm. He doesn't give up. He's with us all the way. When he starts that relationship, he's taking us all the way home. He's going to get us there. Jesus sees me through the storm. In Matthew 14, 31, it says, And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He's talking to Peter. Peter who walked on the water, and he calls him what? Little faith. You see, fear drove doubt into his heart, and doubt caused Peter to slip. He's going under. Notice when the Lord grabbed him. He said, he said uh, Peter, I'm going to teach you a good lesson. I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. Didn't say that, did he? Give him 10 minutes down there. That'll teach him a good lesson, right? What's the text say? Immediately. Not till he learned his lesson right now. Verse 31 says immediately, Jesus is never early, Jesus is never late. He's always on time. Matthew 14, 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Can you imagine? The storm had served its purpose, and immediately, in a moment, it's over. Violent storm at sea, and now it's tranquil. Gone, kaputs. Not a second too long, not a second too short. We want our trials over right now, but sometimes we've got to stay there a while. The Lord's got to teach us a few things. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Wow. Jesus is God in the flesh. The eternal one, the creator of this universe. The God-man who dies for sinners. Unless he's fully God, what he did in the cross, I could see one man dying for one man. I get that equation, but we have to have an infinite value. You've sinned against an infinite creator. You need an infinite payment. There's only one who qualifies, the God-man, who has the infinite worth, who dies for sinners at Calvary. Whenever we enter into a storm, ask this question. Lord, what would you have me learn from this? If you don't, you might stay there a lot longer. Or if you don't, you might have to bring another storm into your life. Lord, help us. We've seen five truths, 
five truths that we must know the next time we enter a storm. He brought me here. He's praying for me. Jesus comes to me. Jesus teaches me in the storm. And finally, Jesus sees me through the storm. You see that? What worries do we have? What worries? See, we can pass through the breaking point and not break. Worry, by the way, is called a what in Matthew chapter 6? I think it's three occasions. It's called a sin. When you're worrying, you're really doubting a lot towards God. We all know John 3, 16. All of us have sinned, right? We all come short of God's glory, but 3.16 says, what? For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him has everlasting life. Eternity is a long time, isn't it? Every breath you take right now, can you imagine a billion years for every breath? That's just the beginning. It goes on forever and ever. It's the end. So in 14.33 of Matthew, he says, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Brethren, there's only one to worship. <laughs> Anything else is blasphemy. Only God is to be worshipped. Christ is the eternal one. Christ is God in the flesh. Christ is our creator, redeemer. Come, repent. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee to Christ. Come now before it's too late. John 3, 18. Who, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Religion has never taken one person to heaven. Religion can't do that. Impossible. There's only one who can take you to heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say it with me? We all know John 3.16, right? Let's say it. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We are victors in Christ. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was John Newton said, I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Come, come now, come before it's too late, come to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for this day. We thank you for life that we have, this physical life in America. But Father, oh, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Calvary. Thank you for opening our eyes to the Lord and Savior of the universe. For we know why we're here and we know where we're going. And if there's one here, Father, or two, that have never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, never embraced him, never been born from above, we ask that you work in their heart today and bring them alive for the glory of the Lamb. May they flee to Christ before it's too late. We thank you and praise you all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.